I invite you to take some time this week to read and discuss the scriptures and questions that will be available in the Faith First section of our Noblesville First website that Pastor Mary Eileen Spence has prepared for us. Hi, I'm Paul Ernst of the Noblesville First Care Team, and this is what I look like without a face mask. I want to start by admitting that I have really struggled with the task of unlocking this parable. I probably would struggle with the task of unlocking any parable. And I wish I could give some easy, definitive, bullet point answers that will immediately give us all the meaning. But I can't. But I can take the next few minutes and describe my journey of discovery over the past few weeks. So let's pray. Gracious God, grant us ever more understanding that we may continue to learn more and more about you each day through the words and ministry of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, the first problem that I ran into with my attempt to unlock some meaning in this parable was context. I saw at least two different contexts through which I might explore this parable of the laborers in the vineyard. First, I could look at it through Matthew's interpretation, Matthew's retelling of Jesus' parable. Or I could try to discern what might have been the context when Jesus originally shared it and then try to draw my own conclusions. And I spun my wheel for a little while, first in this direction and then in that direction. And Part of my indecision, I think, was because I was just a little bit troubled by the final verse of Matthew's accounting of this parable. So those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. Every time I thought I was making progress, that verse derailed my train of thinking. So what to do? I finally settled on looking at some of the questions that others more qualified than me have asked about this parable in the past. And then armed with a little knowledge from the experts, maybe I could add some of my own questions. So what are some of the questions that I found helpful? Question. What is the agenda of the landowner? Why did he hire people all day long and then pay each the same regardless of the number of hours that they worked? Does the landowner represent God in this parable? Is it difficult for us to understand the landowner because we really don't understand what God wants or that we don't think the way that God thinks? If the landowner represents God, then does the parable set up two opposing sides where the laborers are judging the landowner or God by human standards and the humans, we humans simply can't understand God's standards? What are what are the landowner's standards? And what are the standards of the laborers? The first hired, don't they want to be treated the same as the last hired? I think they want to be treated better. Finally, in a true love-your-neighbor world, a world where the kingdom has come near, shouldn't the first hired have been happy for their co-workers who got paid the same for the shorter work day? due to the generosity of the landowner? Well, these questions and 
many more, kind of led me to uh, a bigger question. What might be more helpful for my understanding of this parable? An allegorical interpretation or something more straightforward? And I still hadn't resolved my issue with Matthew's final verse. Well, ultimately, my practical side won out. The landowner might represent God, who is so generous that he gives the same share in the kingdom of God to those, even to those who uh, have done little in the kingdom. And the laborers could represent a fallen and imperfect humanity that doesn't value human beings equally. At least not as equally as God. Then the limits set by human beings are not God's limits. Nice, I thought. But I was still feeling pushed toward a more practical interpretation than that. In my studies, I, I read several references about the custom of a day's pay for a laborer at that time and culture, and they are, of course, references to the economics of the situation. Maybe the parable has to do more with exactly what it sounds like. Maybe the answer to unlocking this parable is to look at the economic situation that's pictured in it. Does that situation, as it is described, somehow connect with one of the themes of Jesus' ministry and teaching? Could it be a challenge to those who heard it from Jesus and later from Matthew and for those who hear it today that we have to choose in some way between how we humans tend to view the distribution and consumption of goods and services of the world or how they should be viewed in the kingdom of God. Now the story says that the landowner pays everyone a living wage, but can the workers be satisfied with being paid what is right rather than what is fair? If the landowner can take a kingdom view rather than a worldly view when he hires and pays the laborers, why can't they too take a kingdom view and see the equal pay for the uneven, uh, uneven day's work as righteous rather than debate whether it's fair? From the landowner's view, are all the laborers equal in value regardless of their efforts in the vineyard? Perhaps the landowner does represent God and is a role model for the followers of Jesus. Could this parable be a warning to people of means like the landowner that they should act as God does rather than as some greedy rich person who sees the laborers as people of less value than himself? If it is such a warning, when this landowner then this landowner becomes a positive role model for the wealthy of the world. But what about the laborers? Unfairness at first seems like a reasonable complaint. How would you feel in their place? I'd complain too. But then on second thought, the only legitimate point the laborers could actually make about the landowner is that he's generous. He's generous to those who hired in late. And he kept his word with the first workers he hired. Now, I think we've all heard of, or maybe even said of ourselves, of people who are above us on the wealth scale. Oh, those rich people. 
those high-tech billionaires. But it just goes to prove that those who have more get more. But the actions of the wealthy landowner seem to say something a little different. The landowner's hiring practices seem to say that those who have not should get enough. And we're all laborers in the kingdom in which the ideal is not just to receive fair reward for ourselves, but for the benefit of everyone. This week, in her Pondering with Pastor Jill Facebook live stream, Pastor Jill talked a bit about author and seminary professor Amy Jill Levine, who teaches New Testament. Professor Levine writes in her book, Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, that in this parable, Jesus follows Deuteronomy 15.11. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, and open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. However, she writes, there is regulation. The rich who fail to open their hand will ultimately receive punishment. And then she writes something very interesting and some might think controversial. She writes that Jesus is neither a Marxist nor a capitalist. Rather, he is both an idealist and a pragmatist. His focus is often less directly on good news to the poor than on responsibility of the rich. And the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament helpfully says about Jesus and parables that Jesus was not a humanist or a philosopher trying to illustrate general truths. He was a preacher of the kingdom of God. Rather than getting lost then in whatever might be the controversial political arguments that that, her statement raises, let's just focus on the responsibility of the rich and the kingdom of God. Might that be the key to unlocking this parable? Well, Professor Levine's statement puts me in mind of Acts 4.32 through 5.11. And as a reminder, this is where Luke reports about the sharing among the Christian believers in the early Christian community. And the responsibility of the rich is very much a part of this narrative. I recommend that you review that on your own but you probably remember that the Christian community was sharing their money and possessions so no one was in need. Whatever was to be shared was brought to the apostles who distributed it according to need. The community was obviously a cross-section of all the economic and social levels of the day, from poor to rich. Luke continues the story, telling us of a rich couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sold the field but then conspired to hold back some of the cash for themselves. Well, let's be more direct. They lied. They lied to Peter, but they really lied to God. If they were discovered putting a worldly view before a kingdom view, in which they would have continued to willingly share their abundance with those in the community who did not have enough, it would have been a completely different story. Of course, they were wealthy. Do you consider yourself wealthy? 
This parable got Charlene and I asking ourselves, are we wealthy? We certainly don't see ourselves as rich people. We don't live in a mansion. We don't drive a Rolls Royce. We certainly can't afford a chauffeur to drive us. We definitely can't afford a chauffeur. But I remember some of the things I saw when Uncle Sam sent me off on an all-expense-paid world trip overseas in the Navy. I saw how people who really aren't rich lived. Some of you may have had similar experiences in the military. I saw people living in cardboard boxes. I saw others finding protection from the weather under rusty metal sheets. And this was within feet of a fabulous, fabulous mansion. I saw children begging in the street. I'll bet those people thought I was rich, even though I was only a Navy dental technician making in a month what a McDonald's employee makes in a few days today. If those people thought I was wealthy then, how would they view us today? We'd probably seem fabulously wealthy as we luxuriate in our clean, warm condo with a refrigerator full of healthy food. Well, it feels like maybe we're getting a little closer to unlocking at least a version of this parable. Now, if I can just decide how these troubling closing lines, so those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last, fit into this parable the way I think it's beginning to take shape. Interestingly, the verse immediately before the beginning of the parable, which is really at the end of chapter 19, the chapter before, says the same thing, but in a different order. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. It seems to me that it could be Matthew's statement about the purpose of these related parables and stories that Matthew has grouped together here, especially in chapter 19 and chapter 20, that the order in God's kingdom is very, very different from human order. Maybe it's not a coincidence that the two lessons Jesus teaches in Matthew 19 immediately before this parable in chapter 20 are the rich man's question to Jesus, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And then Jesus teaching the disciples about giving up things where he has that wonderful famous line, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. I confess that I feel the pain of the rich man when Jesus tells him to go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Like that rich man who posed the question to Jesus, meeting that challenge is truly a great deal more responsibility than I am able to bear. But there is still the question about what this parable of the labors in the vineyard is ultimately meant to teach us. I believe that it asks all of us, rich and poor, but especially of those of us who have more, how much of our responsibility to the kingdom of God are we willing to bear? 
For the love of neighbor, which God demands, does not recognize any limits set by humanity. Amen.